Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. Tonight, we'll be talking about the Cold War between the United States and the Soviet Union. And we'll be talking about the mid-20th century civil rights movement. Those topics aren't ones we'd ordinarily discuss on Civil War Talk Radio, but tonight's book isn't ordinary. Professor Jill Algleim Titus has written a highly original analysis of how the centennial of the Battle of Gettysburg reverberated far beyond the world of Civil War studies and into the politics of its day. The book is called Gettysburg 1963. Civil Rights, Cold War Politics, and Historical Memory in America's Most Famous Small Town. Professor Titus will be our guest tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet Talk Radio, VoiceAmerica.com. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you tonight from our usual location on the third floor of the Brewster Building in East Carolina University's Greenville, North Carolina campus, but not speaking for the campus, not speaking for ECU or for anybody else, and my guest likewise speaks only for herself, as we always do. It's the third show of our 19th season. It's September 2022. Happy holiday season to everyone as the calendar is filling up this coming Saturday, September 17th is Constitution Day. And I'll be giving my students in constitutional history a surprise quiz when we meet next Tuesday. If any of them are listening, you are now you know something no one else does. Um, and of course, next Monday, uh, September 19th, is uh, International Talk Like a Pirate Day. And since I won't be talking with you until the, uh, before then, I'll just say, are ye scurvy dogs and poxy wenches i expect everyone to splice the main brace until you're three sheets to the wind on monday by, by way of celebration uh 
students will not be celebrating in uh, military history, American military history tomorrow, because we have a, a, a quiz that they know about. And I told everyone, bring a blue book to write your essay. And it turns out there are no blue books available this year. The campus bookstore can't get them. There's a paper shortage, something with supply chain. Maybe Russians are using them for something and we can't get them to the United States. I don't know why they don't have blue books. This has never happened before. So I spent part of the afternoon uh, getting last year's final exams from other classes that I've taught. Uh, When the students write their exams, grade them, then they go home for the summer and they rarely ask for their exams back when they come back in the fall. Let me change that. They never ask for their exams back when they come back in the fall. So I've got a huge stack of blue books in which students have written on half the pages, not more than half in most cases. So tomorrow morning, my graduate assistant will be going through these uh, books. I've pulled out ones that have a lot of empty pages and cutting them up and we'll be repurposing and reusing the half empty blue books for the students tomorrow. That's what the world has come to. just thought I would share that. Uh, In better news, it was a great football weekend here at ECU. The women's soccer team beat George Mason in the 90th minute. And then uh, they went on and beat Florida on Sunday. Uh, Always good to beat an SEC team at anything. And the men beat up Old Dominion on Saturday, uh, 39-21. to I got to go to the game. And by far the best moment was our uh, kicker, who missed the game-winning field goal against NC State the week before. When he took the field, the fans greeted him with uh, a huge show of support. There was one guy in my section who was booing, and the, the person he was with, she turned and hit him on the arm, like, don't be a jerk, and he stopped booing and joined the rest of us in cheering for the the, the young kicker, and people were chanting his name, and he hit a field goal. He hit a couple extra points. He also had extra points blocked, but that was not his fault. Uh, he doesn't do the, the protection. So it was good to see the fans doing the right thing and standing up for this 20-year-old who had a really bad day in front of uh, thousands of people the week before. And back at my alma mater, football-wise, we've experienced a peaceful transition of power from Cade, uh, oh, what are their names, McNamara, McCarthy, Cade McNamara to J.J. McCarthy, uh, and Michigan fans everywhere are, are beside themselves with excitement. Uh, but I'm beside myself with excitement for the Civil War Institute next June, uh, which I reminded you of last week, and I'll keep reminding you of because it's such a good program and because they are offering you listeners to this show a 15% discount. Um, this is an unpaid sponsorship, I should add. This is not something where they're, they're buying uh, my time. It's just I think it's such a good program. I want you to know about it. Use discount code PAR when you go to the Gettysburg College website. Look for the Civil War Institute and sign up and go. Many great speakers will be there, and I'll be there as well. So uh, it, it's definitely worth your time uh, in June 2023. <clears throat> in the meantime, we can learn more about the Civil War from people showing up here. Next week, Bill Blair will be with us. He has a short but powerful work called The Record of Murders and Outrages, Racial Violence and the Fight Over Truth at the Dawn of Reconstruction. On the 28th of June, Chris Bryan with a campaign history of the Union 12th Corps, 
from July to September 1862, which sounds like it must be part of a multi-volume project, but uh, that's the one we're going to talk about. And then uh, Jeffrey Wirt will be here in October. His new book is about Spotsylvania. Take a week off to run This Hallowed Ground, a tour of many interesting battle sites, including Gettysburg in October. Uh, so there won't be a live show on October 12th. And we'll come back with Brian Cheeseboro on uh, the, the 19th. So lots coming up. Uh, go to www.impedimentsofwar.org. That's where Brian Gaffney keeps us up to date. That's where he went, logged on today and corrected the spelling of our guest's name that I had, had aired in giving him the wrong uh, uh, spelling, and uh, he fixed it within seconds, so hopefully uh, nobody noticed that. Well, our guest, whose name is spelled correctly on her book uh, jacket, is Jill Augline Titus, professor at uh, Gettysburg College, and... Uh, works with the Civil War Institute. Her new book is called Gettysburg 1963, Civil Rights, Cold War Politics, and Historical Memory in America's Most Famous Small Town. Uh, Jill, are you there? I am here. Thank you very much for having me. Welcome to the show. Delighted to have you. Uh, It was a, a pleasure hearing you talk about this topic at last year's Civil War Institute. And uh, it was right after I heard that, I, I think I ran up to the stage and uh, asked you to come on the show, and, and here we are. It worked well, out I'm well. delighted to be in such good company as the, uh, of the, the individuals who, whose names you were just mentioning. <laughs> That's very exciting. Yeah, there, there are, uh, it, it, I ran into Bill Blair last year at the conference, too. That's, that's when I got a chance to ask him to be on. He's been on before, but uh, we'll have him back. It, it is one of the great things about that conference is the chance to meet who's who of people writing about the Civil War today. Yes. And uh, I use that as a professional opportunity to line up half of the following year's schedule on Civil War Talk Radio. Now, you uh, tell us what you do with the Civil War Institute. Sure. So I am the associate director, which means that I oversee our student internship programs and the two minors that are operating out of the Civil War Institute. We have a minor in public history and a minor in Civil War era studies. And then I also teach usually one course in the history department per semester. Um, This this semester I'm teaching two. We have a lot of people on sabbatical, so it's Mm -hmm. been a busy fall. Uh, I, I can imagine that you just use the S word. We're not even allowed to say that here at ECU. We do not get, I have dreamed of a semester off to work on research, but uh, but it's fun to do the show and, and teach the kids. So that works out. Um, so how, uh, how long have you been uh, with, with, the, with Gettysburg? It's 10 years this fall. Wow. So uh, uh, you've been there a good while. And, and I guess, uh, Peter Carmichael has been the director that whole time? Yes, Pete came about three three to four years before I arrived. Okay, well, very good. Um, you, you can ask him. I, I applied for that job uh, when it came open, that, that oh, three to four years. So. Uh, <clears throat> I, I was already here. I was, I was happy doing this. I really did not want to. I had just moved my family to come to North Carolina, mm-hmm. and I, I, it just wasn't going to happen to move them again. But I was invited to apply, and it would have been rude to mm. tell Gettysburg College, oh, you're not significant <laughs> enough. And so I did apply, and, and I, I was probably half-hearted about it. Um, 
I mean, it'd be a wonderful opportunity. I, I would have loved had circumstances allowed. Um, but uh, I, I think everything worked out. I'm happy here, and, and you have a wonderful director. And uh, the the Institute has just gone from strength to strength over the last uh, 10 years with, with, with your work and, and Ashley Whitehead-Lusky and, and, and Pete. Uh, it's just really impressive what you guys are doing. Well, thank you. That's very nice to hear. We're, we're excited about the direction that we've taken, and I think we've really... You know, it made the conference into something that's very intellectually exciting and interesting. And, and, you know, we're continuing to work on trying to uh, attract a, you know, a a diverse population. And and we're going to, I I hope that we are definitely moving in that direction. Well, I I, I think so. It's, I don't want listeners to be intimidated. It's intellectually exciting, but it's a great deal of fun. There's, yes, there's a lot of it is. Uh, battlefield walking and just having lunch with like-minded people. And th- there was a time many years ago when most of the attendees looked like me, middle-aged, white, overweight, <laughs> hair receding, just about gone now. Um, we were all clones, and, and uh, there's still a lot of us there, but but by no means are we the only, are we the dominant uh, demographic any longer, and I think that's a good thing. So um, let's let's get to your book. How did you come up with the idea to write about this? Well, it came out of living and working in Gettysburg, but I am trained as a 20th century American historian. My my first book project was on massive resistance to school desegregation in Virginia, post-Brown v. Board of Education. And I came to Gettysburg because... The Civil War Institute was looking for somebody to spearhead the effort to establish a public history minor at Gettysburg, and I have an extensive background in public history, and they also wanted someone who would actually be outside the field of 19th century U.S., somebody who could mm-hmm. offer some other, you know, other courses and, 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 and work with students in a slightly different way. So I was hired for my lack of Civil War (laughs) history (laughs) knowledge in a sense. Um, But as you would imagine, being at CWI, it's not as though I had no familiarity with this. One of my my PhD fields was in um, sort of comparative slavery and emancipation. But being at CWI, being on the battlefield so much, I, of course, was always looking through the lens of a 20th century historian. And as I would walk on the field, particularly in the evenings, I would spend a lot of time looking at the monuments and, and looking at the, 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 the dates on the monuments and looking at the names of people associated with them. And then I would get really curious and I would start digging in the park archives or looking back and the new in the newspapers on microfilm and the more i did that the more i realized particularly how many of the monuments on seminary ridge on west confederate avenue were artifacts of the mid 20th century and <laughs> how my study of civil rights and the cold war and my interest in historical commemoration and historical memory could let me see the Gettysburg battlefield in a different way and and could actually it, it, over time became the genesis of this project 
it's interesting you, you talk about the history of the park. So we have some, uh, you know, some wonderful histories of Gettysburg National Military yes, Park. We do um, that uh, um, that th- 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 are often presented at the institute. Uh, people have written about the park itself, but your work is is beyond that you're you're looking at what's happening there in 1963 uh encompassing the the whole community of gettysburg outside the the battlefield mm-hmm. uh as well as the international context uh so l- let me let me lay out a point then we'll take a break uh and you can think about an answer for this the one of the points that struck me as running through this this book is that those of us like me, outsiders who come to Gettysburg once or twice a year if we can, uh, we see it as the battlefield. But a lot of people live there 365 days. It's it's also a town, a community, and it has its own history separate from that of the battlefield, and yet they're intertwined. So what we'll do is take a short break and come back and, and start on that point. What is What was the town of Gettysburg like? in the run-up to 1963. That's the question we'll put to our guest, Jill Ogline Titus. She is the author of Gettysburg 1963, Civil Rights, Cold War Politics, and Historical Memory in America's Most Famous Small Town. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips offers a psychological perspective on coping with common and current life issues. This show addresses topics as varied as marital stress, insomnia, depression, raising teens, campus violence, and building self-resilience. Listen in as Dr. Phillips and her guest experts share the latest in books, findings, and information that will inform and enhance your life journey. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on The Voice of America Variety Channel. Today, many doctors prescribe basic pharmaceuticals to their patients who aren't feeling well or have various aches or pains. Is this the right course of action for all patients? We don't think so. Find out about healthy, natural ways to help you feel your best by tuning in to the CBD Ed Show with host Ed Cheney. Ed and his guests will explain full-spectrum CBD, using the whole hemp plant for good health and answer all of your questions about CBD and natural treatment in general. Listen Fridays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern, on Voice America Variety. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu. Dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. 
talking tonight with Jill Ogline Titus, author of Gettysburg 1963, Civil Rights, Cold War Politics, and Historical Memory in America's Most Famous Small Town. We've been talking about the, the community of Gettysburg and what it was like uh, in the run-up to the centennial, late 50s, early 60s. Civil rights movement is underway Gettysburg is in the north, but you write that it was not immune from from many of the, the racial problems uh, of the era. Certainly not. I mean, Gettysburg is very much of a, a border state community. We're really only about seven miles north of the Mason-Dixon line. And in the early 1960s, certainly Adams County and Gettysburg itself were predominantly white. The, the, um, the Gettysburg, the borough, was about 97% white at that point. The black population was smaller in the 1960s than it had been at the turn of the century. Um, But the community certainly was not an outlier in terms of it, uh, in terms of sort of race relations and segregation. By the early 1960s, overt segregation in public accommodations was starting to quietly diminish, um, but it was still it was still there to the even to the extent that the Pennsylvania Human Relations Commission got involved in the spring of 1963 because they were so concerned about potential discrimination against anniversary visitors and, and launched a big campaign to remind local businesses that Pennsylvania had a public accommodations law and that they needed to be observing it, particularly during the centennial year. So the, the school system was integrated largely in part largely because of cost um, (laughs) to be more cost effective there had been a segregated elementary school into the the early into the 1920s early 30s um but it's a but it's integrated in the sense that a lot of northern schools were quote unquote integrated um you know (laughs) black students were not treated equally within the system they were sort of you know pushed into more vocational courses, discouraged from college prep courses, some extracurriculars were sort of totally off limits. It's a community where there's a great there was a great deal of discrimination, particularly in employment and housing. There were certain segments of the community in which the black population was expected to stay, and any efforts to move outside of those lines were met with a great deal of resistance and employment opportunities were few and far between. And it's very interesting. Um, Of course, we have this perception, I think, so oftentimes that segregation is a Southern issue, that it's something (laughs) limited to the South. That is, of course, absolutely (laughs) untrue. But Gettysburgians by the mid-20th century sometimes used their identity as a tourist community that catered to a lot of Southern white visitors as an excuse for (sighs) these segregation policies. They would say, oh, well, it's not us. It's our it's it's our visitors. You know, business people can't employ blacks as clerks because we have so many white Southern visitors and they wouldn't patronize them. And yet at the same time, you know, they would turn around and make uh, an explicitly racist comment (laughs) along the lines of, oh, they're all too lazy to work and we'd never want to hire them. But they're clearly using white Southerners, essentially putting them up as as a smokescreen to hide 
just how extensive and homegrown segregation and discrimination were. And, and so that means throughout the centennial year, uh, it, it, you, you point out things that are going on around the country. This is, uh, we're going through 1962 and, and uh, uh, Medgar Evers uh, being assassinated. You've got uh, the protests in, in Birmingham. Uh, moving on into 1963. So there's a real concern in Gettysburg that you could have overt protest, direct action protests at the centennial. Yes. And that that would really uh, point out the irony that at this war fought for a new birth of freedom, as Lincoln says, uh, that the people are not experiencing freedom. Let me ask about the battlefield itself uh, in in 1963. I, I first visited myself, I, I would say 1969, as a, okay. a, a boy, and I do have a vague recollection of a Stuckey's on Emmitsburg Road, uh, which, which to our young listeners is sort of a 7-Eleven-ish place, but more more touristy, um, at, right, right near where the... Uh, uh, where the Confederate Avenue crosses Emmitsburg Road, it seems to me, it's right, right in that area. There used to be a uh, this little souvenir store mm-hmm. uh, in the middle of the battlefield, and there was mm-hmm. and there. That's the one thing I remember. You say it was it was worse than that. That there was a lot of commercialism in in that era. Yes, and and there's. And one thing that I think is important to remember about the the development of Gettysburg in the early 20th century as this tourist economy expands is Mm -hmm. that a lot of the land in this community is not taxable. So mm. there is cons- there has always been enormous concern about the tax base and the extent to which employment opportunities are available for local residents. And with the rise of automobile tourism, Gettysburg, which had uh, was already very much of a tourist-oriented community, began to adapt itself to the needs of those automobile-based tourists. And so the the, the hotels and the auto courts and the the restaurants and the souvenir stands and the amusement parks and the things for the children. And then these things just expand and expand and expand across the landscape. And Gettysburg National Military Park was very much, and, and preservationists were very much fighting sort of a rear guard action to try to prevent more and more unprotected land from being eaten up for development purposes. Um, and the, the the centennial becomes a a galvanizing factor for the land preservationists who are able to 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 make the argument that if this land doesn't get preserved now, it is gone forever. If we don't use the symbolism of this 100-year anniversary to galvanize people to to take action and to take action as private individuals, because there were there were there were no zoning regulations in Adams County, which by the late 50s, early 60s, had led to Congress refusing to um, to to fund land acquisition for the park until the local community took some action on zoning. So the preservation campaigns of the early 60s are saying, look, I mean, we literally have gas stations and custard stands and, you know, mini golf, and we, we have these things... L- 
lining you know lining the roads across town we are losing sacred ground and, and so we need to we need to take a new approach to preservation we we can't expect the government to do this we can't expect allocations we need to turn to private individuals and raise money from private individuals to purchase land and then donate it to the national park service so the gettysburg battlefield preservation association is founded during the centennial years there's this big um, campaign through parade magazine to to um to raise funds for the gba and there's a lot of response across the, the the country and people many people coming to Gettysburg in those years were thrilled by these amenities th thrilled by how in their minds family friendly it was and yet others were coming and were just utterly horrified at the extent to which commercialization had taken root and they're writing letters to the Secretary of the Interior even to the White House saying you know somebody needs to take action to save Gettysburg because if it continues in this trend, there'll be nothing left in 50 more years. You know, uh, Fantasyland was, was one of those, uh, uh, the, yes. the Children's Amusement Park was, was one of those particular sites that really uh, seemed to contradict what, what the sacred ground was all about. Uh, the, your book is filled with so many interesting details uh, about this story. Um, the, uh, the you mentioned that there was no zoning and you just it's just an aside in the book you point out they didn't get zoning in Adams County till uh, the National Tower went up in the 1970s the, yes. the Space Needle on the battlefield and again many listeners may remember that monstrosity and then finally they said okay enough um, uh, another uh, uh, detail that that emerged uh, the role of Charlie Weaver the uh, mm the banjo-playing uh, character, actor, uh, he raised a lot of money and, and saved a lot of land. Yes, uh, he did, and operated a museum in Gettysburg. Charlie Weaver's museum was a place where you could come and see his hand, very authentic, um, very impressive, sort of hand-carved soldiers with the, uh, hmm. different units and different kinds of kid and different, and, and they were set up in this and these had been what things that he had been carving and working on as a hobby for years and then he opens this museum in Gettysburg in the late in the late 50s in the lead up to the centennial now the you point out that this is a, a, a crucial moment that with the with the centennial you're going to have one chance to to really save the battlefield and change the character of the area, preserve it. Um, you, you talk a lot about the, the, the national context. This, the, there's a national centennial, of course, of the Civil War mm -hmm. going on. That, that seemed fraught with difficulty from the start. Um, that Because you're trying to have a national commemoration of a war that uh, is fought primarily because part of the country wants to preserve a, a coerced labor system, and you're fighting. You want to commemorate this event during the civil rights conflict of the '60s. Uh, people are going to have very different ideas what the war is about at that time. Yes. That that that, that conflict must have been a, a major part of designing the Gettysburg Centennial. Yes, that's always the, the, that that concern. Those thoughts are, are are always there. And I mean, I think to the, that the 
many of the organizers on a federal level, the individuals who were who were leading the 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 national Civil War Centennial Commission, particularly those who were in charge in the early years, simp- they 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 did not anticipate that. They truly thought that the Civil War was a force for unity. They they did not expect the the depths of division. They did not ex- understand or comprehend the extent to which their decision to attempt to depoliticize the Civil War, to divorce it from slavery, to divorce it from emancipation, they did not grasp the extent to which that was would be controversial or the extent to which their narrative of this as a war that made America great and a war that everybody could find something to feel good about, you know, flew in the face of, of, of sectional tension and division and, and, and all of the upheaval of that period, because they really, I think, did not, they, they, they did not see connections and parallels between their own historical moment and what had happened a hundred years before. And they simply could not seem to get their heads around the fact that most Americans did see parallels. Now they, and they responded to those parallels in widely, you know, in, in, in widely diverse ways, but they saw them nonetheless. In Gettysburg, the, the I think by by 1962 1963 the 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 the, the, the new leadership of the federal commission is is much more aware of these issues they're much more careful in their language they're more focused on um more explicitly focused on education and less on sort of patriotic unity um but that the 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 gettys for the those who plotted the course of the gettysburg centennial i think very much learned from what happened in the at the at the beginning of the national centennial the debacle in charleston in in 1961 the the pennsylvania gettysburg centennial commission the group that that spearheaded the the Gettysburg actions uh, make a statement after what happened in Charleston, where the commemoration of of Fort Sumter was um, set up to be held at a whites-only hotel, meaning that black delegates from northern states, because there were several northern states that had black delegates, would not be able to participate. And it becomes extremely controversial, and Kennedy gets involved, and they have to move to the naval base, because it's really the only desegregated space in the city and it it's on the front page of newspapers around the around the country it's very embarrassing for the united states and the pennsylvania gettysburg group they make a statement about how they are they are um they will be they will work to ensure that the commemoration of gettysburg will be open and welcoming to all um they that doesn't mean that they're taking, you know, an emancipationist perspective on the battle. They're still thinking of this largely as a story about a, you know, a, a fight between white Americans and a fight that ultimately brought the nation back together and made it a stronger, more unified power. But what I think is very interesting about the Gettysburg commemoration is the organizers are not, they don't have full control over any everything that happens. Participants, attendees, politicians, local business people, um, civil rights activists, all of these individuals also use their voices and use their presence to 
to espouse different narratives, you know, ones that the organizers are not necessarily on board with, but they can't keep from being shared with attendees and and shared with reporters and can't keep those other narratives from from reverberating as well. Well, I mean, you point out there's there's a local Gettysburg Centennial Commission. There's an Adams County Centennial Commission. Uh, There's a state organization. There's a national organization. They've all, as you say, each have their own agenda and and, uh, they will be heard. Things will happen whether they're part of the official celebration or not. Um, one organization that it seems to me from this book really does come out ahead that, that, that wins, I would say, big time out of all this uh, is the National Park Service. Yes. And especially uh, uh, Mission 66. And so we're, we're coming to another break. We'll tease our listeners. What is Mission 66? Um, we'll find out. When we come back in just a minute, we are talking tonight with Jill Ogline Titus. She is the author of Gettysburg 1963, Civil Rights, Cold War Politics, and Historical Memory in America's Most Famous Small Town. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Jill Ogline Titus, author of Gettysburg 1963, Civil Rights, Cold War Politics, and Historical Memory in America's Most Famous Small Town. Uh, Jill, I was just really struck to read that as of 1960 there is not a visitor center at Gettysburg not not anything at all uh, I mean for most of us the park service is such a central feature of any national battlefield that we visit uh, 
they don't even have a building in 1960. Right. How, how did that change? Yes. So, I mean, I think it's for us today, we can't imagine a National Park Service site without a visitor center. But really, visitor centers are a product of the 1950s and the 1960s in the NPS. They're they're an outgrowth of an increased focus on how to serve the needs of visitors who are coming by car, not Mm -hmm. by train. Because, you know, people coming by car need a building with a large parking lot with restrooms they need a different they need a different setup than visitors mm-hmm. who, are, who are coming in by train car and getting on you know on trolleys and things so the the visitor center at gettysburg is an outgrowth of the park services mission 66 project which was a a massive investment in the agency's um, in in, gi- in bi- giving the agency the infrastructure necessary to be ready for its 50th anniversary in 1966. Tourism visitation numbers had been on the upswing since World War II, and park funding and park facilities across the agency simply had not risen to the extent to be able to to re to sort of to reorient the parks for that new generation of visitors and their needs. So Mission 66 pumps money into the agency across the country to develop new access roads, to upgrade facilities, to build visitor centers for the first time. And at Gettysburg, there's this convergence between the funding available through Mission 66 and the the public interest in the Civil War spurred by the centennial. And that creates a a campaign to build a visitor center that is not going to be just your standard place where you get a map and you meet the rangers and you find out about the programs and you use the restroom, but something that is bigger than that, something that is in itself a monument to the centennial, something that they hope will be a piece of commemorative architecture on on the level of, of the greatest monuments in the park. So when they put out their request for proposals, you know, they're not looking for the average architect with the average idea. They're looking for something completely out of the ordinary. And what they what they end up settling on is Richard Neutra, the world's most preeminent modern architect at that point, somebody whose buildings were sort of world renowned and and, and acclaimed. Um, they want they want something distinctive and unique. And and Neutra offers them a vision of a building that he says will be a monument, a monument to Lincoln, a monument to the centennial, and a building that can be used to do all those practical things that are necessary, but can also be used in different ways, literally to help fight the Cold War. Well, that's what I wanted to ask about. He he describes it as a shrine to the free world. And listeners, if you're my age, you remember the great white hockey puck on Cemetery Ridge, uh, this enormous uh, cylindrical building that housed the uh, the cyclorama uh, in the 1960s through through the early 21st century. Uh, and if if you're not familiar with it, go look it up. It, it's it's quite something. There's this alien presence in the middle of a Civil War battlefield, but it was it's spectacularly mid-century modern. Um, 
like so much of mid-century modern architecture, it's got great ideas and theory that don't quite work. Yes, it's interesting. I mean, Neuter had these grand, he had a, such a grand ambition for the building. He, you know, he, he at times referred to it as, um, you know, on the level of the Taj Mahal. He, he envisioned <laughs> this building as a, as a showpiece of modern day technology, which he saw as vitally important in helping to induce countries around the world to cast their lot with the United States, that the best way for the United States to cultivate new allies was to marry its, you know, its great technology, its cutting edge technology with its best ideals about democracy. And for, for, for Neutra, those ideals were best expressed in the Gettysburg Address. So he sees mm-hmm. this building as essentially the architectural version of the Gettysburg Address. P- um, re- put that technology front and center, show the rest of the world what they have to gain by choosing, you know, the U.S. side in the mm-hmm. in the Cold War, by allying themselves with the United States. His hope is that the building will be a place where leaders from around the world will come and engage ideas and talk about strategies for um, f- for for reducing the arms race, strategies for diffusing tension, opportunities to engage with U.S. diplomats, learn about U.S. history, learn about those ideas you know, embedded in the Gettysburg Address. So yeah, it's a tremendously it's it's a tremendously symbolic building that from the get-go could not fulfill the practical needs that it was created to you know to to, to house. And much of the technology, much of that cutting-edge architectural technology, it didn't work within the first year or so mm-hmm. in part because the project just seemed in some level cursed. Um, you know, the, the weather was bad. The construction was always behind schedule. The, the architects had very specific requirements in terms of building materials, the materials that were very hard to get, something that we in our own particular moment know all about. And mm-hmm. um, yet and we're not happy with any substitutes or the substitutes didn't work quite the same way the um there's the one of the the one of the the, the things that was sort of the t- one of the technological masterpieces was there were these doors at the at the these glass doors at at kind of running across the front of the building that were supposed to open at the push of a button, giving you a a huge open air amphitheater, which he envisioned would be used for these, these summits of world leaders within a year the doors have settled into the foundation and they can't be opened. And with by the, by the time the centennial observance itself was over, I mean, the building had only been open for, two and a half years at that point, they actually had, the park actually had to bring in, bring in engineers to just check if it was structurally sound. So mm. the building that the, the ideas embedded in it are remarkable and, and fascinating, but in terms of its functionality as a visitor center in a national park from the beginning, it had significant problems. It, 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 as someone who's worked in public history, uh, you know, and, and, and I've had the experience that uh, 
there's so much more going on in a museum or a public building than people think, and there's always things wrong behind the scene. But this building really had its problems. Um, the, uh, uh, the, the event itself, the actual centennial uh, in July 1963, was that a success? Did they get the, the tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people they expected? They considered it a success, and the the leadership, in the end, actually argued that the centennial of the Gettysburg Address in November was mm. more significant, more substantial, and, and more of a victory than the battle anniversary, although they devoted the vast majority of their resources and their planning time to the battle anniversary and, and the Gettysburg Address anniversary seemed to initially be a bit of an afterthought, but in the end, on reflecting on it, they 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 mostly came to the conclusion that, that the November anniversary had been more had had been more successful. But they were very pleased with the the battle anniversary. It didn't attract the number of visitors that they had hoped, in in large part due to the the, the fact that there was a, a really extreme heat wave in the week leading up to the anniversary. Um, July 3rd garnered the, the, the most visitors. The, the first two days did not have as many, but nonetheless, there were still quite a number of people. Over the course of the, the year, visitation hit the two million mark for the first time. And the the coverage, the press coverage around around the nation was was generally quite favorable. Although there were certainly reporters making arguments about commercialization and um, the making the argument that 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 the centennial was just an excuse <laughs> to make money. And there are some, and and there were definitely also those who critiqued the battle anniversary for not taking more of a a specific um, for for not dealing in a, in the official programming in an in an overt way with the legacy of slavery and and with the civil rights activities happening around the country and not making that connection overt. Now there were many people involved in the battle anniversary who did make that connection overt in speeches mm -hmm. in 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 certain monument dedication ceremonies and activities but but the the official activities organized by the the commission did did mm -hmm. not make that argument and and they were definitely called to account for that by some well, the uh, you point out that Vice President Lyndon Johnson gave a Memorial Day speech that year, uh, Gettysburg, that that did explicitly raise some of these issues. Uh, President Kennedy, on the other hand, uh, was was invited but did not choose to attend. Yes, uh, and, and I think probably in the end, not surprising to many people, despite the fact that Wilson had, you know, Wilson had come for the 50th anniversary, Roosevelt had come for the 75th, but Kennedy had been invited to so many major Civil War anniversaries hmm. and had ducked all of them, even a, a program sponsored at the 
at the Lincoln Memorial, sponsored by the Federal Commission itself, an Emancipation Proclamation program. Kennedy was invited. It looked as though he was going to speak. At the last minute, he bowed out. So I think most people kind of, with their their finger on the pulse of Kennedy's concern for not stirring things up with white Southern Democrats would probably have uh, not have been surprised that he declined an invitation both in July and in November. And of course, in November, he went to Dallas instead. And we, we all know how that turned out. Yes. Now, the uh, you mentioned the, the centennial of the Gettysburg Address was, was more successful. It was certainly more substantial. And it, 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 it's... Uh, Consisting largely of, of of talking events as opposed to pageants and mm-hmm. uh, uh, celebrations, I was interested to see the the Fortinbaugh address, uh, now a regular feature of of the Civil War Institute meeting that year, was given by David Herbert Donald, uh, who was my advisor. Uh, so mm, that, that is was that all. So? Okay. Yeah, little little connection with history there. Um, and that's a chance to remind listeners, I have a degree from Harvard University. I, I try to do that every 15 minutes or so. To, uh, <laughs> get, well, you're slipping. You haven't said it once in this entire I, hour. I, I'm not up to the old standard. But uh, it, but he was he was already a major figure in Civil War studies. He'd written his Sum, uh, Charles Sumner biography by then. And, and they had a very high caliber of people uh, speaking at, at the uh, – at the November commemorations, and they they also were, were very clear about the Cold War connections there, about setting the United States up and it, its ideals and Lincoln's ideals in opposition to those of, of the Soviet Union. Uh, there is so much more in this book, which uh, unfortunately we don't have time to talk about tonight, uh, including the uh, what happens after the centennial, the uh, appearance of numerous Southern monuments uh, again. Typical visitor today, and I would include myself, doesn't always put two and two together that almost all the southern state monuments uh, go up right around this time, either before or after uh, the centennial uh, within a 10-year within a span. Uh, and that's the same 10 years of the civil rights conflict. So uh, this book gives one a lot to think about uh, when you visit Gettysburg. And, and as you said at the beginning, you... If you walk around and look at the monuments and when they were put up, you can learn a lot. Uh, So, listeners, you want to get this book, uh, Gettysburg, 1963, Civil Rights, Cold War Politics, and Historical Memory in America's Most Famous Small Town. Uh, It brings together some really disparate threads of American history in a fascinating way. Uh, The author is our guest tonight, uh, Jill Ogline-Titus, professor at Gettysburg College. Jill, it's a pleasure having you on the show. Thank you, Jerry. It's been a real pleasure talking with you. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week. (laughs) 